0: You know, as we spend some time the next couple of months in our country thinking about what good government looks like and what good leadership looks like and start choosing what how we might lead uh, it's really kind of sent me back to the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, Moses was without question Israel's finest leader uh, of their early history. Uh, Moses was the pinnacle of what good leadership should be like in fact much of the Gospels when they're thinking about what should the Messiah be like Their expectations, thank you guys, are driven by shouldn't the Messiah look a lot like Moses? Shouldn't the Messiah come and bring us into a season of our country's history that looks like the exodus, uh, uh, not from Egypt, but from out from Rome? Shouldn't the kingdom that comes when Messiah arrives look like uh, the days of David and Solomon, which come after Moses delivers them into the promised land? Uh, All of messianic expectation is really rooted around the leadership of Moses and the kingship of David and a little bit of what comes out of the prophets. We root most of ours today as Christians in the prophets because we love their call to justice and mercy and compassion and heart obedience, not just legislative obedience. And we look to uh, the Messiah in that way. And we do that because Jesus said, this is the kind of king I'm going to be. But for Israel, Moses was the quintessential leader. And Moses, as he's leading, doesn't do so as if he is the greatest. He does so as if he is the one who is leading under God's good rule and God's great reign and God's leadership and command. And so when we look back to Israel wandering in the wilderness and coming out of Egypt and and going to the banks of Jordan where the book of Deuteronomy really takes place, what we see is God is king and Moses is his middle management leader and, and they're all leading Israel and it's not easy, it's very, very difficult. And the book of Deuteronomy is essentially three sermons with a little bit of content in between. Three sermons. This week we're briefly going to kind of introduce uh, the book and we're going to introduce the idea. Uh, and we're going to start looking at the first sermon, which is in Deuteronomy 1 verse or one through 4. We're going to look at a number of texts that are in there. Uh, but the real exercise that Moses is undergoing here in the book of Deuteronomy is he's come to the end of his leadership of Israel and he knows it. He's come to the end of his time of leading this people that have often made him crazy, but have often allowed him to bring him out of Egypt and to the the shores on the outside of the promised land. Looking across, they can see it, what they've been waiting for and praying for all these years. And he knows that he's not going in. In the middle of this sermon in Deuteronomy chapter 3, Moses spends some time praying to God, God, let me go into this land with this people. And God says, this is not for you. This is for the next leader. This isn't for you. It's for the ones who will come after you. Moses had taken Israel as far as he could take them, and it would be up to Joshua and the leaders to take them the rest of the way into the promised land, to the place that God had promised them, to the lives that God had led them to look forward to and to anticipate. And so Moses, knowing all of that, begins these three sermons in Deuteronomy knowing this is his farewell address. These are his last words. It's the the time in his life where he's kind of looking back at everything that's come before and and everything that will come after him, and he's seeking to gather all of it into a single story and a single purpose and to establish the legacy that his life has, has made for Israel. But not just his legacy. He wants his legacy to not just be about what's happened in his past. He wants his legacy to be about what Israel will be in their future. If God's been in charge as Moses was leading, as Moses leaves, he needs to root the leadership and reign of God in the minds and hearts of these people so that when they go into a promised land filled with other people and other gods and other problems and other challenges, that they don't forget to take God with them. So he begins this book, His Farewell Address. So I started looking this last week or so at some of the great farewell addresses in our country's history. Times when leaders looked back on their legacy and they anticipated going forward what our country would need to hear in their final moments. And and they established these incredible speeches. And there's two that I want us to look at. And and, and I want us to look at them to think about what it must be like to be at the end of your life's work and your, your... your entire effort, everything you've poured into your life and the people that you've been leading, knowing that as you reflect on what's past and anticipate what's forward, you don't get to go there with them, but that you hope that all that you've done in the past will go with them so that they might be successful in that place and in that time, which is to come. What an exercise for a leader, a great leader, to be able to participate in. And the first one I wanna look at is, is, of course, if you hear farewell address, you think George Washington. Probably the most famous farewell address, certainly in American history. And he actually wrote the address twice. At the end of his first term of four years, he was ready to retire and actually had James Madison helped him draft a first version of the farewell address, only to have several Hamilton and Jefferson come to him and say, Uh, listen, we don't get along and no one gets along, and if you leave, this whole thing's going to fall apart. We need four more years. And he gave four more years in spite of being ready to be done. And in those four next years, he continued to see the challenges of a country that once unified against a common enemy was now struggling to stay unified with themselves. And in his farewell address, he gives unbelievable advice. And I want to just kind of go through some of this. And and I'm I'm not going to actually read much of the farewell address because Alexander Hamilton wrote it. And if you've seen the Broadway show, you know that he famously uses the fanciest words and the most complex orders in ways that today you kind of go, is that English? But that's Hamilton. Talk less, smile more, right? Hamilton. So after opening with an explanation of his choice not to seek a third term, Washington's farewell address urged Americans not to put their regional and sectional interest above the interest of the nation as a whole. You have a common cause fought and triumphed together, Washington declared. The independence and liberty you possess are the work of joint councils and joint efforts of common dangers, sufferings, and successes. Regions such as North, South, East, and West should see their common interest rather than their differences, he continued. Your union ought to be considered as a main prop of your liberty and the love of the one ought to endear you to the preservation of the other. According to Washington, one of the chief dangers of letting regional loyalties dominate loyalty to the nation as a whole was that it would lead to factionalism. You might even start color-coding states if you could imagine a world that we live in today in Washington's imagination 200 years ago. He believed that it would lead to the development of competing political parties. So when Americans voted according to party loyalty rather than the common interest of the nation, Washington feared that it would foster a spirit of revenge and enable the rise of cunning, ambitious, and unprincipled men who would usurp for themselves the reins of government, destroying afterwards the very engines which had lifted them to unjust dominion. And just as regionalism would lead to the formation of political parties, Washington believed that partisanship would open the door to foreign influence and corruption. And while he advocated for the United States to be on good terms with all nations, especially commercial relations, he argued that inveterate antipathies against particular nations and passionate attachments for others should be excluded and that the US must steer clear of permanent alliances with any portion of the foreign world. He thought they would challenge our unity, not just locally, not just nationally, but internationally. And he wanted the country to remain united and strong. He believed that love for one another across divisions would be what would hold our country together. And and that political parties would lead to a spirit of revenge. And foreign influence and corruption should lead us toward isolation. 200 years later, I think we can look back and think that George Washington had an incredible amount of foresight. An incredible intuition to know that division among a united people would begin to destroy all that held them together. What a farewell address. He's not the only one, though, in our country's history to give what amounts to a farewell address, although not called this, and it's difficult to tell to what level it was originally intended to be one, on the eve of his assassination, Martin Luther King Jr. gave a speech that sounds as if he, in fact, knew that it would be, if not his last, among his last farewell addresses to our nation and to the people that he'd been working with and ministering to as a preacher for so many years and that he'd been leading and envisioning a better tomorrow for our country. He gives a sermon that has been titled, I Have Been to the Mountaintop. And again, seeing so much of his legacy and what it means for the future and the ability in giving a farewell address to anticipate what is coming once you're not able to go with the people you've been leading, Martin Luther King proclaimed something's happening in Memphis. He was there um, due to a sanitation worker strike in Memphis. Something is happening in our world. And you know, if I were standing at the beginning of time with the possibility of taking a kind of general and panoramic view of the whole of human history up until now, and the Almighty said to me, Martin Luther King, which age would you like to live in? Well, I would take my mental flight right by Egypt. I would watch God's children in their magnificent trek from the dark dungeons of Egypt, through or rather across the Red Sea, through the wilderness on toward the promised land. And in spite of its magnificence, I wouldn't stop there. I would move on by Greece and take my mind to Mount Olympus, and I would see Plato, Aristotle, Socrates, Euripides, and Aristophanes assemble around the Parthenon. I would watch them around the Parthenon as they discussed the great and eternal issues of reality. But I wouldn't stop there. I would come up even to 1863 and watch a vacillating president by the name of Abraham Lincoln finally come to the conclusion that he had to sign the Emancipation Proclamation, but I wouldn't stop there. I would even come up to the early 30s and see a man grappling with the problems of the bankruptcy of his nation and come with an eloquent cry that we have nothing to fear but fear itself, but I wouldn't stop there. Strangely enough, I would turn to the Almighty and say, if you would allow me to live just a few years in the second half of the 20th century, I would be happy. That's a strange statement to make because the world is all messed up. The nation is sick. Trouble is in the land. Confusion all around. That's a strange statement. But I know somehow that only when it's dark enough can you see the stars. Something's happening in our world. The masses of people are rising up, and wherever they are happening in our world, the masses of people are rising up, and wherever they are assembled today, whether they are in Johannesburg, South Africa, Nairobi, Kenya, Accra, Ghana, New York City, Atlanta, Georgia, Jackson, Mississippi, or Memphis, Tennessee, the cry is always the same, we want to be free. Men, for years now, have been talking about war and peace, but no longer can they just talk about it. It's no longer the choice between violence and nonviolence in this world. It's nonviolence or nonexistence. That's where we are today. And also in the human rights revolution, if something isn't done, and done in a hurry to bring the colored peoples of the world out of their long years of poverty, their long years of hurt and neglect, the whole world is doomed. Now, I'm just happy that God has allowed me to live in this period, to see what is unfolding. And I'm happy that he's allowed me to be in Memphis. And he talks some about the details of his particular uh, boycott and other things that he's instituting in Memphis. And then he continues, and, and, and you've got to get a little bit more of this because it's going to become really relevant to what Moses is going to be doing in Deuteronomy. He says, Now, what does all this mean in this great period of history? It means that we've got to stay together, we've got to stay together and maintain unity. We don't have to argue with anybody. We don't have to curse and go around acting bad with our words. We don't need any bricks and bottles. We don't need any Molotov cocktails. We just need to go around to these stores and these massive industries in our country and say, God sent us here to say to you that you're not treating his children right. And we came by here to ask you to make the first item on your agenda, fair treatment where God's children are concerned. Now, if you're not prepared to do that, we have an agenda that we must follow. And our agenda calls for withdrawing economic support from you. Then I got into Memphis and some began to say the threats or talk about the threats that were out of what would happen to me from some of our sick white brothers. Well, I don't know what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead. But it really doesn't matter to me now. Because I've been to the mountaintop. And I don't mind. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place. But I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain. And I've looked over and I've seen the promised land. And I may not get there with you. But I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. So I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man, for my eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. (sighs) What a speech. What a farewell address. It's so poignant in his ability to understand what he's doing in that moment on the eve of his assassination that many have wondered over the years if he had been given a, a, a prophetic awareness that he needed to give his last speech. And whether it was just because of the increase of the number of threats, uh, the plane that he'd been on the night before had extra security and guards set around it all night, knowing that the threat was that real. And so he was aware that his time might be limited. And he says, I've been to the mountaintop and I've seen the coming of the glory of the Lord. That's a Moses reference. That's where Deuteronomy is ends is with Moses on a mountaintop having led the best he can for as long as he can looking over the Jordan into the promised land where the people would go without him in spite of the work that he'd done. That's a sermon. That's a sermon and it's an incredible illustration for me today because the reality is that once Israel got into that promised land the challenges didn't leave The challenges remained. God delivered them great victories over all their enemies that were in that land, the Canaanites, Hittite, Amorites, Ammonites, and on and on and on as the list goes. The people who praised and worshipped the pagan gods that were in those places were driven out by the Lord's might and the people's faith. But the conquest remained incomplete, is how the story of Joshua Judges, Ruth, and the prophets go. There remain peoples in the land that are there to continue to challenge Israel. As they lose faith, they come up and rise up against them. And there's these problems that keep rearing their ugly heads. And as Martin Luther King, in his speech, uh, denounces what has been in the past and is excited about what's coming in the future, I think we can certainly look back on the work that he did in the civil rights movement and say, man, much has improved in our country and our world. It's better than it used to be. But you can't help but notice that even as we're in the promised land, that you can't help but notice that when you look around, there's still problems and challenges that keep rooting up in all kinds of different ways. Uh, This week, one of our sisters in Christ was racially abused on the street for doing nothing other than being black in public. There's still work to be done. And when we reflect on these great farewell addresses from our nation's history, Washington saying, That if you stay united and don't seek revenge on one another because of regionalism and factionalism and and all kinds of alliances that aren't based on your common interests. And and as we look to Martin Luther King's farewell address and we see him proclaiming that that there is a great future ahead and a future that is better today than it was then but still leaves us with room for progress and work. And, And brothers and sisters coming together and saying we stand against those who stand against people being treated like God's children. Moses, at the end of his life and leadership and ministry, enters into a similar exercise. We're going to look at it from an airplane, as I view today, and we'll zoom in more to some of the highlights in the coming weeks, but here's some of the things you need to know, is that there are a handful of refrains, of verses that are repeated over and over and over and over again throughout the book of Deuteronomy. And we're going to hit these today because you need to see, uh, if, if you're ever reading the Bible and you want to know what's really, really important in the Bible, the Bible authors make it really easy to figure out by repeating themselves over and over and over and over again. And so if you see something 100 times in a single book, you don't have to ask, man, is he just, did he get lost? And does he just keep circling back to the same topic? No, he's there on purpose. He's repeating himself as a biblical author over and over and over again in hopes that you will finally get what he thinks is most important to being people living lives of faith. And so I want to look at these, what we'll call refrains. They're verses that are repeated over and over again in Deuteronomy, and it gives you insight into what Moses thinks is so important. These are the first three sermons recorded in all of Scripture And the first one's relatively short. The others get longer. But as you look at these sermons, what does Moses think matters most? Deuteronomy 27 and verse 10 says this, You shall therefore obey the Lord your God and do his commandments and his statutes, which I command you today. Just the book of Deuteronomy, it's said 130 times. You think it matters? obey God when it's easy, when it's popular, when you're wandering in the wilderness, when you're in a promised land with foreign gods. Don't stop obeying God's laws. The next one is Deuteronomy 26 verse 1. Then it shall be when you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance and you possess it and live in it. That gift of land, God's given you this treasured possession, is in the book of Deuteronomy over 100 times. Do you think Moses is worried that people are going to get into the land and start looking at each other and being like, we've really earned this? We've really, our military and our farming acumen and our construction tools have built these buildings that were built by Canaanites and planted these fields that were planted by Philistines and and done all of these mighty acts that were all performed by God. Moses says over a hundred times in these three sermons, do not forget that the land is a gift from God. Don't forget where your blessings come from. Over 50 times is the father's refrain, this reminder that may the Lord, the God of your fathers, increase you a thousandfold more than you are and bless you just as he promised you. The God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The, gods, uh, the God who has brought your people for all of these years to the place where you are. It, it, God didn't just show up on a whim. He's been the God of your fathers for generations. There's the blessing refrain. Exemplified in Deuteronomy 7 and verse 14. You shall be blessed above all peoples. There will be no male or female barren among you or among your cattle. Which is not a. It's a weird verse for us. It's not like we know you're equally interested in your women and your cattle. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is from your most prized possession of your families to the most small possession of, uh, of your livestock, from the most important to the least important on the full range of what matters to you, God will bless you and increase you, your families and your flocks. How much more could you want if all of that is included? The promise of blessing appears about 40 times. There's a promise for good life for those who do what is asked of them. Deuteronomy 32, 47. For it is not an idle word for you. Indeed, it is your life. And by this word, you will prolong your days in the land, which you are about to cross the Jordan to possess over 20 times. A promise of good life to those who receive the blessings of the Lord and obey his commands. And then finally, the refrain encouraging multiplication and growth. Lord your God has multiplied you, and behold, you are this day like the stars of heaven in number. A dozen times. The things that matter, Moses repeats and repeats and repeats. And when you go through this sermon, especially this first one, the first sermon has several major themes, and I just want to hit them real quick, because the major themes are this, is that God guides history. God is involved in the world and he is active and he is empowered and, and he is not just off in the distance watching, going, I wonder what's happening down there. The Lord is in charge and he guides history. And as they're about to go into the land that has been promised them, Moses wants them to know that it is the Lord that enables you to go into this land and that will deliver it to you, not your might, strength, wisdom, power or anything else. It is his greatness, not yours, that brings your blessings. Faith in the Lord must be passed on to a new generation. And this becomes one of the great challenges that echoes through the rest of the Old Testament. As one generation is raised up that did not know the God of their fathers, who he was or what he had done for them, and they lost faith. And then another generation would come up and be rebellious against their pagan fathers, then renewing their obedience to the Lord. Isn't that something? That every so often a generation rebels against their parents and in doing so chooses to become faithful when their parents aren't? Shows God will be in charge whether we are or not, doesn't it? Lord wishes to build an ideal community in the land. His plan isn't that he gets a good enough community. God's plan is that he gets a community that live by his principles and his rules and his commands in and among pagan people so that those people look at this nation and go, "What a great nation of wisdom. What a blessed nation to have their God living so close among them." In the tabernacle and eventually in the temple. We don't we, we don't have that. What a blessing. These people must receive and what a way that they live in the midst of us, living differently, treating each other fairly, showing hospitality to the stranger, welcoming the foreigner who is among them, showing kindness and love to all of those who are their people with justice and mercy and righteousness in their laws and in the way that they treat one another. Moses calls the people to know, guys, I... God's not letting me go with you into this promised land. I've been leading you for a long time. And you catch later in the book that he also has this implication of, and I'm sick and tired of it, so I'm ready to get a nap. I'm ready to rest. I'm ready to be done. And as I'm done and you're going over there and you've only had recent leadership that included Pharaoh and Moses and you might worry about who's next, he says, don't worry about who's next. God's already raised up the next leader. It's Joshua. He's going to take you into the land. And you don't have to worry about Joshua because as much as God was with me, he's going to be with Joshua. Israel's fate is not tied to good leadership because its fate is tied to God who is always good, always eternal, always with them. So don't worry about middle management when God's still the CEO. When God is king, you don't have to worry about who's under the king because God's good reign will continue. And so the big question in Deuteronomy 1 through 4 is really this, who's in charge? Who's in control here? And that question sounds really good right now when it's easy for us in the country that we're living in, in the time that we're living in, with the news media that we're living in, and we've got all this stuff going on, to just look around and go, who's in charge right now? Who's in control right now? And it's not just today. It's in every single generation in the history of our world. They have to wrestle with the question, who is really, really in control? Who's ultimately in charge. Because in every generation, there's a number of voices that want to compete with the claim that God and God alone is in control. And when those voices challenge that God is in control, what they always want to say is, you know, really, we're in charge here. Really, you're in control of your life. Moses Wants the people of God to resist those voices. Moses wants the people of God in his and every generation to know that the most successful lives settle the issue of who's in control early on and then live accordingly. If you believe that God is in control you can sort out the rest as you're going and not only can you sort it out but you can prepare for the future by looking to the past. The Old Testament performs this exercise all the time. And so in the beginning of Deuteronomy, Moses looks back and he says, listen, don't you see what's happened? When we were in the wilderness and we were wandering, there were good times and there were bad. You know what the good times had in common? You listen to God. You know what the bad times had in common? You listen to somebody else who said, we think we can do a better job of being in charge than this Moses guy, than this Yahweh God guy. Moses argues, and I think quite successfully, that when people recognize the authority of the Lord, that life gets better. And when you listen to the Lord, you escaped Egypt. And when you reject the Lord and listen to others, you wander in the wilderness. And if you reject him for too long, you're even going to die there. It's a pretty good sermon. It's a pretty good beginning to Moses' farewell address. And we're going to spend a while letting Moses guide us through his experience of walking with God as king over his people, providing good government to a people that he believes should be obedient and blessed in a land full of people that presented them with all kinds of challenges because I think that message has some real relevance for us today. you know washington and mlk at the end of their leadership in pivotal moments in our country's history wanted to know how we would deal with divisions and unity moses who led from egypt to the promised land at the end of his leadership the first core question that he demands the people answer is this do you know who's in charge and that that question echoes into today do you know who's in charge Because if you think it's you, you're still learning. If you think it's somebody else who's living and walking and talking among us, you're still learning. If you know that it's God, then your life's going to be rooted with a pretty good foundation to weather life's storms. Because when you turn to God knowing that He's in charge, you get delivered from Egypt or any other enemy or challenge that's come our way. It's true through history, and it's true into the future. But when you turn to any other authority, you're going to die in the wilderness. God's in charge. You can believe it or not. Your lack of belief in God's authority does not reduce His authority one bit. But if you choose to live accordingly to his, live according to His authority, root everything else to that reality, you're going to find that the blessings that come from obedience will be wonderful and remarkable and that God will live that forward into so many different ways in your life. This morning, uh, if you need to respond to the gospel, and the gospel is this that Jesus Christ was crucified and resurrected, that he has given us an invitation through baptism and faith and obedience to live a life where we go into the promised land in a spiritual way that is lived out in a very physical and real way where we become the people of God living by the power of the spirit living within us if you need to respond to that gospel or have any other need this morning please come forward as we stand and sing